Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's housing crunch won't get any relief from the local school board. Hamilton police got caught up in an email spoof. Where is Ontario's extreme heat preparedness plan? An unprecedented court drama over a dog is about to play out. The Twitter killer has been unfurled. And does the NFL have a gambling problem? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, questions about the future use of the vacant Sir John A. Macdonald School in Hamilton came up in recent public meetings about encampments in this city. And so it is begged a couple of questions. What What is the plan for this former school property? And should this old school site be used to ease Hamilton's affordable housing crisis? Can it? There's another question for you. Here to provide some of the answers, we hope, is Don Danko, the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, who joins us on GMH. Don, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So maybe we'll start with the the, the biggest uh, umbrella kind of question is, what is the plan for Sir John A.? Well, thanks for the, the time to answer that question, because there has been a lot of misinformation and speculation out there. Understandably, um, when people go by the site, there is a big building. Could that be used to support uh, the houseless? Um so, first of all, the, the site is not up for sale. There, there was some insinuation recently that there is planned, plans to sell the site and turn it into the, um, an expansion of the entertainment district. That is categorically false. So the trustees have not declared it surplus. The plans for this site is to have a future elementary school on it. That is something we've actually requested of the ministry a few times now. And we know that it takes a number of years before new schools get approved, but that ultimately is the plan uh, from the board's perspective. So in terms of, and, and how far down the road is that? Maybe we'll get that. Well, that's where we don't have certain timelines, and, and that does create some challenges. Uh, people will probably remember that we did um, have some conversations with the city and with a group called HATS around possible use of the site, not the building, the site, um, a couple of years ago in 2021. Um, but unfortunately, one of the challenges is we don't know what our timelines are for, for using that site for a new elementary school. We've been putting the proposal forward to the ministry for the last couple of years, and we don't know when the next opportunity will be or when they will approve it. So it is contingent on the ministry um, making that approval. And for many of our proposals, our capital proposals. We have had to wait a number of years before getting a school approved. Um, So we don't have a clear timeline, but I think it's also important to note, you you mentioned, can we use this building? And and the fact is, um, since 2021, we have the building has sustained water damage, and that's led to mold and health and safety issues. So the, the building itself is not suitable uh, for use or any kind of occupancy uh, any longer. So it's really not um, available or possible to use it. Just one further question regarding the 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 idea of an elementary school on that site. You need the province not only to say okay, but to give you funding as well for it. That is correct. The province, uh, when they approve new elementary school sites, uh, they do provide funding for that. So that is part of the reason it, it does take time. Um, they have a lot of requests across the province as we we experience uh, changes in our population and growth in in different cities. So it's understandable that it's not something that we can expect um, or or count on in any given year. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Don Danko, the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. We're talking about the future use of the Sir John and McDonald School in Hamilton. There is 
An idea out there from City Council. They're garnering feedback on encampments and how they should be set up in this city. One idea is having sanctioned encampment sites. Would the board be open to providing a site on the Sir Johnny McDonald School property? One of the challenges, again, is if, if we were to provide space on that site, uh, we do have that future use planned. We have direction from the board and we have those requests that have gone into the ministry. So um, when we were talking previously, again, with HATS to look at uh, a pilot for tiny shelters, one of the, the conditions was that there's a lease agreement with insurance, there was security, no illegal activity, a police protocol, wraparound support. But the most important one is that they identified a future location for their their shelters because we knew that this would be very temporary. So, you know, unfortunately, that makes it quite challenging for us to enter into an agreement with anyone um, to, to have an encampment on the site without all of those conditions being met. So if the city said, hey, Ms. Danko, hey, public board, uh, we'd love to have a, a sanctioned encampment on this site, the answer right now would be no? The answer right now would be, uh, here are the requirements that we've set out in the past, and those would need to be met. I would need to take it back to the Board of Trustees as well. But again, um, one of the the big things that we're looking into is demolishing the the actual building on the site. And so the site isn't appropriate for use if we're going to be doing that demolition work. That wouldn't be a safe location. So again, we wouldn't want to set something up uh, that's very temporary in nature and then create a future problem where it would have to be moved in, in uh, you know, the next year. Would all school properties be off the list in terms of potential encampment sites? I think one of the challenges um, around encampment sites is, is what would be um, the protocols in place to make sure that they're safe, that they're supported, um, that there isn't illegal activity. And the, the conversations right now seem to be centered around, you know, what <laughs> what should be allowed in encampments and, and what should not. We have a responsibility for our properties and to the neighbors of those properties. And again, um, any sites that we may be able to provide, they tend to be right in the middle of a residential area. Uh, we would have to have assurances um, that, that safety and security would be first and foremost uh, centered in that work. That makes sense. Uh, Ms. Denko, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for uh, chiming in and clarifying some uh, misconceptions in the community about this site. Thank you, Rick. Don Denko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. You are listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this is one of the wildest stories that I've come across in a long time. What we can say is that the email did not originate at the Hamilton Police Service and that it was uh, an email that was created to mimic or uh, look like uh, one from the Hamilton Police Service. That is Hamilton Police Constable Indy Barrage, Hamilton Police trying to figure out who is responsible for sending a fake media release to some local media outlets in this city. We didn't get it here at CHML. And I kind of miffed because it sounded like a pretty good story. But when I saw it on other media sites, I thought, well, I didn't get that media release. Well, they did, but it was fake. It wasn't actually from Hamilton Police. David Fraser is a privacy lawyer and partner with McInnes Cooper, one of Canada's 25 largest business law firms. And David joins us now here on GMH. David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. This is really uh, a story that's bonkers. Have you seen this type of thing before? Uh, I haven't, <clears throat> pardon me, I haven't seen it in this context where impersonating a police officer, 
in my cybersecurity law practice, I see email impersonations all the time. And even very often they would originate within the organization as a, as a result of a hack. So not only do they look legitimate, they're actually legitimate. This one is an example of spoofing where somebody who knows what they're doing can create an email that really looks like it came from the organization, uh, certainly well enough to trick people. And, and we certainly see that all the time. If you go in your spam folder, you see a whole bunch of things that purport to be from Canada Revenue Agency, from Scotiabank, from Royal Bank, and, and things like that. So this is all along that that continuum, but I'm, I'm left scratching my head what this person thought that they were going to accomplish uh, by doing this, kind of what's their, what's their motivation. And the fact that they knew the appropriate contacts <clears throat> within the media organizations and that they knew who was the media relations person suggests that, the, that what they call the threat actor, the bad guy, had really done some homework. Hmm. And so again, I'm, I'm just puzzled what this could really all be about. Yeah, beyond embarrassment, and, and you know, police are trying to figure out the motive as well. I, I can't quite, you know, wrap my head around other than, you know, trying to embarrass the, the people that they're spoofing or even maybe these these media outlets. Well, it could be, could be. It, uh, certainly, so the Hamilton police have said it did not originate within their system. So mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a hack, so they shouldn't be embarrassed about that. And presumably they've done a, a proper investigation to, to determine that. Um but it, I suppose it could have just been to to rouse up mischief or to see if they could do it, uh, see if they could do it well enough to be to be credible as uh, set up for something in the future. Now, police were quick to say that they were not hacked. And, and you just referenced that this was a spoof. What is the difference? Well, so a hack is when somebody actually is able to log into your computer system and, and send an email from your actual account. Uh, and we see that. We see that relatively often, and most often it's associated with electronic funds transfer fraud, where somebody will will uh, get into a business's email system and talk to their customers, pretending to be them and, and saying, oh, we've changed our banking information. So when you pay that next invoice, send it to this this new bank account. And, and that that works a lot. Uh, spoofing is where somebody pretends to be somebody else. They, they using their own email system or, or one that they've been able to take over, they're able to change the settings so it looks like it comes from uh, that organization. And frankly, I've seen it myself. So my law firm is McGinnisCooper.com. We've had instances where people have, have registered the domain name McGinnis with MC and then the number one NNES. Hmm. So at first glance, it looks like it, it comes from the organization. And I've also seen it where they use uh, kind of Cyrillic non-English non characters in order to uh, spoof a domain name and they register it and they send an email from that one. But at first glance, it, it, uh, it really looks, uh, looks legitimate. So I think one of the takeaways for your listeners and the Hamilton police service and all the media folks is, is to, you know, be careful about every email that you receive. There's very often within a business, the, the email system will say, we'll add a, a note kind of, this comes from an outside sender, or this comes from somebody you haven't sent it to before. Because it can, the email system will detect whether there's something fishy in the um, in the domain name, and but one just simply needs to be cautious, and it does make a lot of sense. If you get an email from somebody you know that seems unusual, don't reply to that email. Pick up the phone and call them, um, because the the bad guy might have access to that email account. Or if you reply to that email, it's just going to go to an email address that's that's uh, managed by the bad guy. But if you pick up the phone, they presumably don't also have access to that person's phone. In our final minute together, does Hamilton police need to change anything on their end? 
I, I don't think so. Uh, they might want to put in language in their emails suggesting that people verify or, or to double check. But, you know, those email disclaimers and slogans at the bottom of email messages that we see all the time don't have a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of effects. Uh, there are systems that they could use, for example, encryption and electronic signatures. They can verify the authenticity of, of an email sent, but those aren't in common enough usage that a recipient at CHML or CBC or CTV would readily be able to, oh, yes, this has been digitally signed by the Hamilton Police Service. But hopefully we're going to see more of that or, or wide, more widespread adoption of that sort of uh, technology so that you can have that additional level of, of confidence. But uh, but when it comes to just something that's, uh, that's news reporting, I suppose it... it too often media outlets just cut and paste a press release. If they got a press release that was fraudulent, uh, that could have caused some sort of mischief, a, a, a reporter would have participated in that if they just cut and pasted it and published it on their on their website or reported it as news without verifying further facts. It's a really wild story. David, thanks for shining a spotlight on it with us. It's my pleasure. Anytime. David Fraser, you too. David Fraser is a privacy lawyer and partner with McInnes Cooper, one of Canada's 25 largest business law firms, cybersecurity expert, and... Wow, Hamilton Police, for their part, um, asking for any information. If you have information on uh, this uh, incident, to give them a call and contact them. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're a little hot-blooded this week in particular because of a heat wave, and El Nino is in part to blame for that. I am El Nino. All other tropical storms must bow before El Nino. Yo soy El Nino. For those of you who don't habla Espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. I really like to have a little fun here on the show, but this is a serious issue, and that is the extreme heat in this heat wave, because not only are many Hamiltonians and many Ontarians baking under this heat, a lot of people who don't have air conditioning certainly feeling the impact. So, the Ontario Green Party is once again calling for the development of an extreme heat preparedness plan. What does this plan look like? Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Rick, always a pleasure to be on. I know we have, you know, heat waves, whether they're long heat waves, mini heat waves during the summer. Why do we need an extreme heat preparedness plan? Well, because heat kills, and we know that these extreme heat events are only going to get worse as the climate crisis worsens. Uh, You know, we saw a couple of years ago in 2021, over 600 people in B.C. died uh, from the extreme heat domes uh, that happened that year. And so we have to be prepared, and Ontario is not prepared. And so what we're calling for are short, medium, and long-term solutions. I mean, the most immediate solution is that we have to expand the number of cooling centers. In the same way we respond to cold in the winter and ensure people have access to warming centers, we need to make sure people have access to cooling centers right now. Uh, and, you know, part of that is, is making sure that the province is helping fund municipalities to do that. But part of it's also putting in mandates to ensure that people who are in long-term care homes, for example, uh, healthcare uh, facilities, uh, tenants in uh, apartment and condominium buildings, uh, mandating that they all have access to cooling centers. And then long-term or medium-term, Rick, we're going to have to make sure that you know, we maintain green space. And so, you know, this awful plan to carve up the Greenbelt for development, 
um, things like that actually remove the green space that creates um, ways to reduce the heat island effects of pavement in urban areas. Uh, things like maintaining tree canopies so people can access shade, etc. And then longer term, you know, obviously we're going to have to reduce climate pollution because this is being fueled by 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 climate um, the climate crisis. But we're also going to have to make sure that we have a climate adaptation strategy, not only to deal with extreme heat, but also, you know, we're dealing with these extreme wildfires that are just having an unprecedented scale. So, you know, we have poor air quality and extreme heat, and we're going to have to put in place measures to protect Ontarians from extreme weather events because they're only going to get worse moving forward. I want to focus in on the the cooling centers and buildings, apartment buildings that don't have AC. You also want to mandate maximum temperature limits in those kind of apartment buildings. Now, there would obviously be, uh, I would I would guess, a cost to the landlords there. Is there a fear that that could lead to higher rents? Well, you know, the bottom line is, is, is that uh, landlords are going to have to provide uh, these kinds of cooling spaces within their buildings because it's literally a life or death situation. You know, we saw in British Columbia when they did a review of, you know, the fact that over 600 people died uh, during the heat dome events that happened in 2021, um, literally people baked in their rooms. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be horrific about this, Rick, mm-hmm. uh, but I think we need to have an honest conversation and so mandating cooling centers in buildings is literally a life or death situation for people, especially the most vulnerable. And, you know, if need be, government can provide uh, some supports to help cover the cost uh, to obviously, you know, maintain, you know, the other challenge we're facing, which is a cost of living crisis uh, to help mitigate any effects uh, related to, to rent increases but, but for many folks, especially the most vulnerable, this can be a life and death situation. Uh, your plan also calls for the province to help unhoused or homeless residents. Uh, obviously, uh, the encampments issue is a big issue here in Hamilton. We've got about 30 seconds. The premier has already said he's given millions to municipalities for shelter spaces. We don't have any more room here in Hamilton, and I'm sure other communities are in the same boat. How do we help these people? Yeah, well, you know, one, we're going to actually have to uh, increase funding to expand shelter space in, in the immediate term. But the real long-term solution here is permanent supportive housing. Governments used to invest in that back uh, prior to 1995, and we're going to have to have the provincial and federal governments supporting municipality to provide housing for people that's deeply affordable. Michael, I'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Hey, anytime, Rick. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, and some of the things he's saying make sense. You know, provide these cooling centers. Let's build some supportive housing for these individuals, get them out of encampments, and hopefully install some AC in those units as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here is a really interesting story. In fact, it is the center of what is going to be an unprecedented court case that is going to play out this summer. And it has to do with a dog named Rocco. And Rocco is just over a year old. But here's where it really gets interesting, because long story short, a woman and her boyfriend owned this dog. But after he died, his family says the dog belongs to them and not his girlfriend, despite the fact that she's been with Rocco since he was a pup. So begs the question... Who really owns this dog and how should animals be treated 
in estate cases. Kim Kira is an associate and estate lawyer with Learners LLP and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. Have you encountered uh, anything close to this kind of story? It's really interesting. It's the first of its kind that I'm aware of in Ontario. Um, there are reported cases of legal disputes over ownership of a pet after a breakdown of a relationship. But this is the first one I've seen um, that I'm aware of in Ontario for estate cases. So the woman's name is Alicia Verma. She's from Brampton. And she claims the dog was given to her as a gift in February of 2022 by her late boyfriend, Leonard. So does that not mean that the dog is her property? It, it will really turn on the evidence. So the there are three elements that need to be present for a gift. The first is an intention to donate. The second is an acceptance of the gift by the recipient, or we call we call them the donee. Um, and third is a su- sufficient act of delivery or transfer. So um, in order for the recipient to establish that there was a valid gift, uh, they would have to prove those three elements. When it comes to pets, are they still considered property like, I don't know, jewelry or a, 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 an end table? I don't know. Is it is a pet still property? Yeah, this is one of the areas where the law hasn't quite caught up with so, uh, current social norms. So many people view their pets as family members. But under the law, you are quite right. Pets are considered to be personal property, much like any other asset like a car or a jewelry. So when we talk about custody of a pet, for example, after someone dies, what we're really talking about is ownership, just like with any other asset. So when it comes to pets, should owners who are in a relationship, especially, I guess, make some plans to make sure their pets are cared for or or they get them in the event of the death of a partner? Yeah, I think um, it's a very good idea to... Um, speak with an estate lawyer, especially if you feel very strongly about um, what happens to your pet after you die, um, to, to, to discuss your various options. Um, and also, it's also very important just with estate cases in general, what I find is that communication, clear communication with your family and loved ones is very important. This could open up the floodgates, depending on how this goes, because if it goes one way, you might get a lot of pet owners thinking, well, my goldfish is just like a dog. I mean, it's a it's a living, breathing kind of animal, and that should be in the same uh, you know, category as a dog. If if it goes towards the, I guess, boyfriend's family, is that a possibility? Is that precedent setting? Well, at this stage, the law considers all animals to be the same in terms of uh, all animals are treated to be personal property. So whether it's a dog, a cat, a bird, a fish, all of them will be will be treated the same as, as personal property. How do you see this playing out? It's interesting. I would be very interested to see what the court does with this. Again, um, there was there's the question of whether it was a valid gift. Um, I'd be interested to see what the what the evidence is uh, what evidence is presented and how the court deals with it. A very interesting story indeed. Kim, thanks for chiming in and offering your thoughts on it. Thanks very much for having me. Kim Kira is an associate and estate lawyer with Learners LLP. Uh, again, the woman in this case, Alicia Verma Brampton, says the amount, quote, the amount of stress and anxiety Rocco would have to experience being separated from the only mother he's known, that's just so terrifying for him, which is an interesting comment because she's speaking for the dog. That's just so terrifying for him. Well, how, how does she exactly know that?
This is, uh, we'll continue to follow this story because it's a really interesting one for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of apps, there's a new one out there. It actually came out last night ahead of schedule, believe it or not, that many believe will become a Twitter killer. Say hello to Threads. And I'll tell you who's not a fan of this new app. That's Arkell's front man, Max Kerman. Can't do another platform. I can't. I just can't do another app. Can't service another platform. I just got this email from our label about another platform. Just f***ing coming. Max is tapping out on another social media account and... I don't know if we can blame him. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, good morning. How are you? Good. I am well. And I, as, as I'm listening to Max Sherman, who I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of the band, fan of him, just his general yes. sort of demeanor, his life. But he raises a really good point, right? Like, And a lot of people are asking that last night as they installed threads and as they started using it and seeing what it could and could not do. I saw a lot of posts. Uh, both there as well as on Twitter, uh, about, you know, okay, great. Now I've got another app that I've got to care and feed. And, and, you know, where am I going to find the time and how am I going to use this in ways that are different than all the other tools that I'm currently using? It's like, are we, are we tapped out by apps? And I think it's a reasonable question. Um, cause I honestly, like I look at how much time we're spending on these things every day. We've just added one more to it. Do we really understand what that means? Great question. Great perspective. And I think we should all be asking ourselves that question. Today. I think everyone who's, you know, dabbled into social media can sympathize with Max Kerman. Here's the question. How, how should we be using this new threads app? What, what is the intention of it? Well, it looks like you know, the way uh, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, you know, its CEO Mark Zuckerberg, founded by Mark Zuckerberg, and the way they describe it, it's a it's a it's a text based exchange platform, which sounds shockingly like how Twitter is described. And if you know, if you sort of get into it, you roll up your sleeves and start using it, it sort of looks like Instagram, uh, but then it it feels like Twitter. You 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 tweet you you know, you, you you send a thread out. And then people just start responding to it. I think the threads part of it is that it's a little more conversational than Twitter. It's a little easier to follow conversations. But generally speaking, it seems to be horning in on exactly the space that Twitter occupies, which is largely text-based exchanges. You can share photos and other imagery as well, um, but it really is about the conversation. Uh, without all the other things that you know, Facebook has thrown in or TikTok has thrown in, uh, it's conversations stripped down to its barest elements. And uh, you know, compared to Twitter, it's missing a whole bunch of things. It doesn't support hashtags. It doesn't have direct messaging. Right now, it's just all about maybe rebuilding that town square that we kind of lost when Elon Musk took Twitter over. All right. So I'll, I'll admit I got caught up in the excitement this morning. I downloaded this Threads app. Posted my first thread. Was that a good or a bad idea, Carmi? Oh, I think it was a really good idea. I think we owe it to ourselves right now because everyone is using it. This is the perfect time, you know, as everyone is kind of wandering around, figuring out if this thing is for them, to kind of dive in and, and answer the same question for yourself. Uh, and and there are a lot of people. I think at one point Mark Zuckerberg was he was posting on threads the number, the millions of people who signed up so far, and at one point he got up to. Five million after a few hours, um, and you know the early numbers don't really matter. What really matters is if people stick around, and so now's the time to see who's on it, 
what they're saying. Uh, does it sort of does it address a lot of the complaints we've had about Twitter? Is it a nicer place to be? Because uh, Mark Zuckerberg has said he wants to bring kindness back to the space, and for a lot of people, that's really enough. And so, you know, we'll know over the next few days if. And, and weeks and months, and we'll sort of see if this thing gains traction, if it's for us. But this is the perfect time to do that, because everyone else is wandering around the, the, the room sort of figuring out what's going on. Why shouldn't we? Carmi Levy is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Carmi is a technology analyst and journalist. Some have called Threads a Twitter killer. Uh, is that a possibility? Uh, you know, if I had a dollar for every time something came along that claimed to be a Twitter killer, I I wouldn't have to work anymore. I think <laughs> no one else would either. It's it's one of those things, and you know, you know, blank killer is sort of a big thing in tech. There's always something that's going to come along and knock off the top player. Um, but I think, and and so we've seen this before. We saw it with Mastodon, with Hive Social, with Post post news um a few months ago they all sort of flared really big lots of people downloaded them installed them and you know signed up and posted a few things and then sort of realized that well there's no one else here so we're just going to bail and they kind of faded back into obscurity there's another one called blue sky from jack dorsey who of course founded twitter uh, that also is in beta and we're sort of waiting for that thing to go public but of all of them it's sort of this pool of tools that sort of do what Twitter does and could, in theory, replace it. Uh, This one, Threads, is the one that's best positioned to do just that. Will it actually happen? Again, verdict is still out. It's going to take time to figure that out. But right now, uh, because it springboards off of Instagram, because you could be doing nothing, just minding your own business, and you're in Instagram, and all of a sudden you see all these people over on Twitter, it leverages Instagram to pull you into threads. Uh, it, 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 it takes your network on Instagram, and it allows you to build your threads presence on that. You're not starting from nothing. Of all of those tools, this one has the best chance right now. And I think the architecture of it is very clear. It's, it's sort of taking Instagram virality and hoping that, that it can replicate it in this new threads landscape. Uh, and of all of the sort of new tools, new social media tools that we've seen over the years, I have to give Mark Zuckerberg and his team credit. They've done a really good job sort of taking what we liked about Instagram and transplanting it into a new tool and making it really hard for us to ignore. Even if you knew nothing about Threads and you were just an Instagram user floating through your feed last night, it was pretty hard to ignore the fact that something special was going on across the street. So kudos to them. This is an interesting example of cross-platform launching of a new social media platform. And so far, Meta seems to be doing a pretty good job of it. In our final uh, 30 seconds together, I want to get your input on today's poll question of the day. We're asking people, how many social media accounts do you have now that Threads is on board? Uh, are you anywhere in the none to five plus category? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely five plus, uh, <laughs> and I definitely spend too much time on it. I realize by, you know, by virtue of the work that I do, I need to, um, but I really do think we all need to look at the number of apps that we have how much time that we're using on them, and more importantly, how we're using that time. In other words, are we spending all of our time doom scrolling without actually, without actually getting some work done? Um, I, I, I fear my answer to all of those questions is yes, and I think it's time for all of us to have a bit of a personal reckoning on social media use. Yeah, I'm in the five-plus category myself and looking to trim, looking to trim down a little bit, Carmi. <laughs> Appreciate the time <laughs> as, this morning. As, as long as I'm on your network, I'm good. Really. <laughs> Thanks, Carmi. <Carmy. laughs>
Thanks. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Very interesting story out of the National Football League. Suspended a handful of players for violating the league's gambling rules. In fact, four players have been suspended. Isaiah Rogers and Rashad Berry, now formally of the Indianapolis Colts. They were both released after this story came to light. Free agent Demetrius Taylor also suspended for the entire 2023 season for betting on NFL games last year. And Tennessee Titans offensive lineman Nicholas Petit-Frere was suspended six games for betting on other sports at the workplace. With the recent explosion of sports wagering, could this grow into a bigger concern for all sports leagues? Mike Norain is an associate professor of sports management at Brock University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm I'm fantastic. I'm the first question I thought is I'm not really surprised by this. I mean, I was expecting at least one player, I mean in this case it's four, to be caught betting on NFL or other sports games. It's it's all over the place. No, absolutely. And, and, and it's not the first time either. I mean, if we unpack uh, and unravel, at least in the NFL over the last couple of years, I mean, even guys, you know, superstars like Calvin Ridley, um, you know, who have dabbled between the use of cannabis, but also gambling um, have been suspended for full season. So the very first thing that we need to do is establish, at least in the NFL context, what the key rules are. So the first rule, absolutely unequivocally, is you cannot bet on the NFL, period. If you are an athlete in the NFL, you shouldn't be betting on the NFL. The second one, which is where a lot of these players are getting in trouble, is you're not allowed to gamble, not just on the NFL, but any sport or any activity at your team facility while traveling for a road game or staying at a team hotel. Number three is you can't have someone else place a bet for you. Um, number four is not sharing insider information about the team, so knowing about injuries and stats um, or, or, you know, just feelings and, and certain plays. Uh, number five is not entering a sports book during the NFL season, so not walking into a physical location. And number six is not playing daily fantasy sport, which has also been um, highly publicized over the last two decades, I would say, here in North America. You know, the, the, the six rules are pretty clear to the NFL, but they're very hard in practice for, for the athletes, particularly, like I said, number two, um, for those who are listening, if, if you recall the popularized basketball docuseries, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, as an example, um, you know, the camaraderie between athletes, in that case, men's athletes, but even women's athletes, when you're on the road, when you're traveling on a bus, um, you know, even, you know, I, I played lacrosse at university, you know, when I was traveling to McMaster or traveling to to, you know, um, you know, McGill, you've got four or five hours to, to kill. What are you going to do? You know, you, you play blackjack, you play poker, and that's the type of thing now that could potentially get uh, a player in trouble. And so that's where we're, we're walking into this gray area. What is really interesting, especially for the NFL, because it has, for the longest time, had an arm's length kind of relationship with betting. You know, we've always seen odds with NFL games, but yeah, they have these rules. They they now have a team in Vegas. Um, the, the league, this league in particular, has to be very careful going down this road. Well, and, and you know, we know we we know from the research, Rick, that that uh, you know, particularly men from uh, uh, racialized backgrounds are disproportionately likely to uh or, or disproportionately more 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 inclined to gamble on sport um and, and we know that research both in the united states and here in canada and so 
you know, when you look at that stat and then you say, well, these are the actual athletes who, you know, just want to, you know, as as we know, primary motivations for, for gambling tend to be financially motivated. But the secondary motivation, which I would hearken in this case is, is the primary reason for these athletes wanting to gamble, is the hedonic motivation. The I'm doing this because it's entertaining. I'm doing this to pass time. I'm doing this because I just want to make these other games more fun. Like, you know, maybe I've got a buddy on the Cleveland Browns and I want to, you know, bet against them because, you know, my buddy sucks. You know, those are the types <laughs> of things that, uh, you, you know, particularly when we talk about uh, this fraternity that is uh, men's football. Um, that people want to engage in. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, as professional sport in particular uh, now starts to get more involved with, on the sports gambling avenue, but also starts to realize the, the value of being in Las Vegas. And, you know, Vegas as a, a city, as a metropolitan uh, area in the United States, has grown significantly over the last decade and a half. You know, we're talking you know, the population of that DMA being like 200,000 to now over a million, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, of people living in, in Vegas. It's not just a, a place where people come for a weekend and a bachelor bachelorette party. It's a place where people live and work and play um, ongoing. And so, yeah, you know, as the Raiders are there, as the Aces are there, the Golden Knights and, you know, potentially the Athletics uh, in baseball, you know, th- this relationship that the NFL, and, and, and I should also mention really quickly, the NFL is the sport for gambling. Mm-hmm. It, it is aligned perfectly where you've got 30 seconds of play and two minutes of waiting around. Yeah. So it's the perfect, uh, you know, you know, setup for I can place a bet, I can reset my, my bets, and then place another bet for the next uh, uh, activity. And do and it so over and over again. You can do it over and over again with multiple outcomes per match. So we, we, the NFL just has to be very careful, and they are trying to take the appropriate steps, which is research and education. But you know, getting into that, that education uh, too late, apparently, they need to, to start this at the youth levels and work their way up That's a good uh, through point. college Mike, and then to the pros. i got to jump in here because we're out of time, but appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining oh, us. Oh, no, anytime. Uh, have a great day. You too. Mike Narain, Associate Professor of Sports Management, Brock University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review